it might be, you know, akin to the, uh, the some of the Navy victories in uh, early 1942 against uh, the Japanese Navy around uh, around New Guinea and <laughs> those areas uh, where it's like, hey, you know, we shows we can stop them, but there's a long war ahead. And I tend to think that's what this is. It's going to be up to the Space Force, the individual guardians to take what they like and run with it. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, and welcome back. In this week's episode, we're going to cover a lot of ground in a relatively short amount of time. Over the summer, there was a flurry of policy wonk activity in and outside of the Space Force for the Space Force. There are proposals for how to train and guide the careers of officers. There's a new framework for deterrence. But we're going to look at the two documents the Space Force provided, and those are the doctrine documents for operations and intelligence. However, before we do, two more pieces of writing were released this week. First, an email from the Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, who oversees the Air Force and the Space Force. He signaled big changes are on the horizon. And then a day later, the top Space Force officer, Commander of Space Operations General Chance Salty Saltzman, issued a new spunky and expansive mission statement that's nine words long, and it goes like this. Secure our nation's interests in, from, and to space. To understand the doctrine, the email, and the new mission statement, I have two of my favorite space power experts and scholars, Peter Gerritsen and Brent Ziarnik. Here's our conversation. Hey, Peter, Brent, it's great to have you both back on the podcast. Thank you so much for having us, Laura. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. And before we begin, could you two take a moment and introduce yourselves to the audience? And Peter, why don't you start and don't forget to mention that latest article that you have in The Hill? Well, I am a longtime space advocate, and today I have out a new piece in The Hill celebrating DARPA's entree into helping build a cislunar ecosystem. And I presently am a senior fellow in defense studies at the American Foreign Policy Council, where I have written two books, one Scramble for the Skies, The Great Power Competition to Exploit the Resources of Outer Space with Dr. Namrata Goswami, and The Next Space Race, A Blueprint for American Primacy with Rich Harrison. And Brent, what about you? Uh, Hi, I'm a visiting professor at uh, Johns Hopkins University. Uh, I teach with the U.S. Space Force, so I'm a Space Force civilian uh, teaching in their professional military education program. Uh, I just retired from the Air Force Reserve after 20 years of uh, service as a space operations officer. So earlier this week, the U.S. Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, sent an email addressed to all Space Force guardians and Air Force airmen. And it says some interesting things like, and everyone, these are quotes, quote, China is also dramatically expanding its nuclear force and military space capabilities. We cannot sustain deterrence by standing still. And he also wrote, it has become clear to the entire senior leadership team that we are not optimized for great power competition. And he also said, 
We will conduct a major initiative over the next several months to identify and implement the changes needed to meet our pacing challenge. This initiative will involve a comprehensive look at all aspects of how we organize, train, and equip the Air Force and Space Force. So that seems pretty dang big, Peter. What does this actually mean? What should someone who has no idea of how the military works understand this message? Well, I think you've seen, you know, a slew of documents and rhetoric coming out of uh, the Pentagon and particularly the Joint Staff, noting that our adversaries are attempting to realize their goals without actually engaging in warfare. And so they're attempting to take provocative actions and improve their position below the level of the U.S. Uh, response. And thus, that gives us essentially adversaries are attempting to win without fighting, and that if the, the United States military is unable to adapt, we face the possibility of losing without fighting. And particularly on the heels of a you know, very, very long engagement with the Middle East, which required constant cycling of expeditionary forces uh, and really a focus on non-governmental actors and, and terrorists, we have uh, atrophied uh, in a lot of the capabilities we need to be both deterrent and advance U.S. interests. So I, I, I think that probably Brent and I uh, had come to this conclusion over a decade ago, and that was one of our reasons you know, for pushing the Space Force as a posture uh, for a great power competition. I can only hope that Secretary Kendall will, will discover what has so far been ignored, which is the incredible need to do integrated strategic campaigning to develop a, a concept for competing in the space domain itself to prevent the PRC from extending its integrative coercive campaign. Well, um, I hope that what what Peter is saying comes to pass. But uh, when I read a little bit deeper into the statement, I'm I'm not quite as as optimistic and enthusiastic because. He, uh, you know, Secretary Kendall talked about, you know, the nuclear force and military space capabilities, which is the same rhetoric that's been used for a couple of years now about the Air Force's interest in in improving the nuclear force and, and military space, I guess, a little bit. But uh, it isn't clear that there's anything that's going to be dramatically advanced other than we need a replacement ICBM. We need a replacement for the Ohio class ballistic missile submarines and the DOD writ larger. But he asked a few questions later on in that message. Uh, and he, are we ready to go to war with a peer adversary? You know, and then what changes do we need to make in the Air Force and the Space Force to make sure that we're able to go to war with a peer adversary? And how can we be even more ready? That doesn't strike me as the questions asked if you're going to look at, you know, strategic competition and integrating campaigning. That sounds oddly enough, or honestly, like doubling down on the war fighting mantra which uh, the Air Force might be, you know, wedded to from an operational point of view, but is not very healthy for the Space Force itself. So I'm not particularly enthusiastic about about the message with regards to the Space Force, but it is open enough with what he says, you know, what Kendall said earlier on to try to insert as much integrating campaigning in it as possible in the committee that he's going to set up. Uh, because it sounds like, hey, we're going to have our top men and women looking at it for a couple of months. That strikes me as not, you know, actually doing anything to solve the problem because committees very rarely get anything done that's visionary. 
And also yesterday, the chief of space operations issued another C-note. And in this one, he revealed the Space Force's new mission statement. It's short, but is it new? What does it actually mean? We may be talking some insider baseball here, but let's bring everyone along with us. And Brent, why don't you dig into this one first? Well, this, uh, I think, is very, very positive. Uh, I think General Saltzman really did a good job with uh, with updating the Space Force's mission, uh, where he wants it to, well, it reads now, secure our nation's interests in, from, and to space. That is very simple, very catchy, at least for a, you know, a, a war theory doctrine kind of, you know, PME geek like myself. But it explains an awful lot, but also leaves, an, you know, it open to interpretation, which is extremely good because the new mission will require the Space Force and, you know, the Guardians to understand what the nation's interests are in space and from space and to space. And I really do think it will engender a lot of discussion and debate and inquiry from our Guardians, which is which is very necessary. And it's very all encompassing, in, in my opinion. So we talk a lot about, especially, you know, Pete and, and I and you talk about blue water versus brown water and all this other stuff. Well, all of those viewpoints have very important things to say about what our nation's interests in space really are. And I think with uh, General Saltzman's new mission statement, it's game on for the Space Force to really uh, think about what their mission needs to be in order to secure and uh, succeed in their new mission, which I think is very enthusiastic. Uh, I'm very enthusiastic about it. Peter? In my view, it's a total home run. Uh, I think it is such an improvement over the last mission statement. You know, the last mission statement was clunky, but more than just clunky, it was constraining to Guardians to see themselves in the largest possible context. This really opens up the full possibility of playing the largest possible role in grand strategy. I think it it really captures you know everything and what what particularly pleases me is you know in the law that established the space force it basically uses that language it, it says that you know the the function of the space force you know is to protect uh, us interests in space and to uh, provide freedom of maneuver you know in from and to space so i like it when mission statements actually reflect their the law uh, and so I'm super happy about this. And I agree with Brent that this really opens up the possibility of the totality, right, of unifying, you know, uh, brown water and blue water, because it places the focus not on the joint force, but on the nation's interests. And I think that's very important because the potential roles and missions that the Space Force was created to play is not solely about supporting the joint force. It is about securing and I, I also like in General Salzman's expansion when he talks about securing can be the proactive gaining of an objective, a gaining control with or without force. And I think that's terribly important, you know, for what is in front of the Space Force. The Secretary's email and the Space Force's new mission statement 
they really punctuate a summer season in which policy wonks have been very busy. A number of reports and documents have been released or published. Brent, you participated in two episodes on the RAND Corporation's Space Force Workforce Proposal. RAND also just released a space deterrence framework. But the Space Force published two doctrine documents one on intelligence, and one on operations. Brent, could you explain what doctrine documents do for a military branch and specifically the Space Force? You know, why do they draft doctrine? How is it used? Sure. Doctrine in the military is really supposed to codify and explain best historical practices. At least that's what they're meant to do. Uh, The combined experience of the military in whatever area that they're writing the doctrine about is supposed to be written down. It's like, okay, based off of our experience, presenting forces, doing these things is how we should best use our military power, you know, moving forward. So uh, that's part of doctrine. Uh, But another more, you know, bureaucratic point of doctrine is that it's really doctrine is what is officially taught as true by the services. That doesn't necessarily mean it's true, Um, And that doesn't necessarily mean it's historically based or not historically based. It's just, hey, the general signed off on this. This is what we need to read. This is what we need to understand. This is what we need to to push forward with. Now, why that doctrine is written, I think you can basically boil it down into three different things or three different, you know, missions for for the doctrine. One is to have an official document so you can teach your younger people in the service what it is the service does and what they do. So an operations doctrine uh, will apply to a lot of space operators, you know, and the intelligence doctrine would be, you know, something that uh, younger intelligence professionals in the Space Force can read uh, when they're going through tech school and and other things. Uh, The second mission is that you try to explain yourself, in this case, the Space Force to other services. Okay, this is what the Space Force believes So this is what you're going to have to deal with when a Marine talks, you know, when a Marine Intel person talks to the Space Force or an army or something like that, when they get into joint campaigning, joint planning and all that other things. Uh, And then third, the very, you know, another bureaucratic sort of definition or reason why we have doctrine is because everyone else has it. It's sort of a, you know, a point of maybe not prestige, but hey, that we're supposed to be taken seriously by having your own set of doctrine to sit alongside. Uh, you know, Army doctrine, Air Force doctrine, Navy doctrine, Marine doctrine, and get information from joint doctrine and help push, you know, uh, new joint doctrine forward. So I think the Space Force has really, uh, is really trying to do all of that with their, with their doctrine documents. But I think right now with especially pushing them out as fast as they are, they're really trying to get a full set of doctrines so they can say they have it. So now they look like all the other services. In uh, operation, they don't just have operations and intelligence. They also have personnel and some other things that are coming out. But that's uh, really what doctrine does is trying to write down what they think is the most, uh, the best military advice they have uh, in a very general, you know, generic general sense to uh, plan and to uh, train for the future. So now that we have the basics, What are the strengths or weaknesses of the intelligence or operations doctrine that you think are important to either build on or perhaps not so great and we maybe should rethink it? Peter, why don't you start this? 
Well, first of all, I want to start with a bit of historical context. So those of us who are advocates of the Space Force made a bet that once the Space Force achieved independence, it would begin to focus and develop doctrine that had basically been ignored and not created for you know, at least two decades. So you know, one of the complaints in the 2000s when there was the first push for a Space Force was the lack of you know, continued development of space doctrine. So I think it's extremely good that now you have space folks thinking and writing about their domain. And I think there are a number of things to appreciate in in this. First of all, you know, as sort of a Space Force 101, operations does a great job of explaining what the Space Force does, what's out in space, what are the operational considerations. And what it really does some novel things on, in my view, is it does great multi-domain connecting. So it does a great job of connecting space with cyber and the new thinking on the electromagnetic spectrum. It, it really does the first thinking about how ground can support a counterspace campaign. And it does a very conscious job of instructing Space Force members to think about how space can support not only the space domain, but multiple domains. And you know, while this is, you know, very focused on war fighting, it at least leaves open a little, there's a little bit of discussion on uh, constant state operations and competition. And there is at least the mention of uh, translunar, cislunar, and the solar regime, as well as the occasional mention even of people in space. So, you know, there are a few tendrils in this document um, you know, that are uh, even more forward-looking. And I, I might have more comments later on, but let me give Brent a chance to give his evaluation. Yeah, I, I generally agree with uh, a lot of what, what Pete says. Um, there were some things that, you know, as a, as a space power theorist, at least I try to present myself as one, uh, I found pretty interesting. And that was even uh, Major uh, General Bratton's uh, opening uh, forward, uh, where he argued that uh, he wants to concentrate, you know, space forces to control lines of communication, you know, uh, in the hopes that we, uh, the space force can win space superiority and enable joint lethality without the fiscal and political costs associated with pursuing space supremacy. That is a very interesting admission in that they're trying uh, or they're looking at, you know, uh, old, you know, military concepts that have been adapted for space, like lines of communication. So shout out to, you know, Dr. Uh, John Patsy Klein for coming up with uh, with the celestial line of communication uh, almost 20 years ago, uh, maybe actually a little more than 20 years ago now, to uh, actually get missions done and start to present a way that the Space Force is going to try to enact, you know, uh, space superiority, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, there was a lot of good discussion on key terrain and positions. The principles of war discussion, I thought, was pretty interesting. Um, I do have to say that the cislunar and solar regimes looked like they were tagged on, you know, just tacked on without a whole lot of discussion. But like Pete said, they're there and they're in doctrine, which which gives them a certain uh, amount of respectability now that that younger or more visionary guardians can force upon the less visionary guardians. Um I didn't see that there was a whole lot about strategic competition or great power competition, although it was there a little bit. But I do have to say that uh, I was most excited about the elevation of the lines of communication concept to be a relatively big deal in, you know, Space Force operations doctrine. 
that has a lot of implications, uh, especially for the intelligence uh, doctrine, at least moving forward, which I will have a little bit of uh, things to say as soon as we move on to the intelligence doctrine. Uh, there is one other thing that I forgot to add about uh, doctrine uh, and doctrine writing in that it is a, it's a thankless job to write. Uh, initial doctrine, usually given to a major or maybe a senior captain or a team of those. But you can get individuals writing good stuff, but then it goes to pretty much everybody to say yay or nay on it. So it's very common to have very sort of visionary, interesting, coherent doctrine written out and then sent out to everyone. And then it gets picked to death by everyone uh, that's on the staff summary sheet. And it looks like this might have suffered a little bit from, uh, you know, people taking out certain things because they critically non-concurred with certain things. So doctrine by itself is is generally going to be not as, you know, forward-leaning as you would like because everyone gets to take their knife to it. Uh, that being said, the operations doctrine is pretty good. It's a, it's a definitely a step forward, not as far as we'd like to go, but hey, I'm, I'm a zealot, you know, you it doctrine writing is the art of the possible. And I think they did a good job. So bravo to whatever team or writer did the operations doctrine. Good job, guys. Yeah, I, I want to just second that. It's tough to write as a team and a group. And this document has a fairly consistent voice uh, throughout it. And, and as you know, Brent said, this is a level up. You know, there are, there are things that I really liked. Like I really liked the the attempt to think through the principles of joint operations or the principles of war to really connect. I liked it that they had this long appendix on applicable guidance and uh, summary. I, I liked it that they included the joint functions. I wish they'd done a little bit more. But as Brent said, you know, the real missed opportunity here is to incorporate these new joint concepts, joint concept for competing, joint concept for integrated campaigning. And if I could make an analogy, right, a major reason for doctrine is to instruct, instruct people how to think about things, instruct them what to do. And this is like, you know, a father takes his kid aside and he, he's telling him all the important things, you know, this is how you budget, this is how you run a household, these are the problems. And, and oh, by the way, you know, there are things called, you know, retirement funds too, um, but doesn't give any instruction, like how do you invest? How do you become, you know, wealthy? How do you you know, uh, prosper, not just survive on a day-to-day -day basis. And so the document does point to the fact that the Space Force might eventually, you know, uh, have operations in cislunar or the solar regime, but it doesn't provide any, any teaching about how to do that, about how to advance the, the integrated strategic campaign. And some folks will say, oh, but, you know, that's conceptual, that's not doctrine. And, and I think this is where Folks on the blue water have a different interpretation about what doctrine, you know, what, what should be on the table for doctrine. And I think those of us, you know, would say, look, we do have strong codified lessons for developing domains. We know what it took, you know, in the Western expansion. We knew what it took in the naval expansion. We knew what it took to become a naval power. We knew what it took to develop, you know, a, an aviation base and create, you know, a, a global uh, aviation system. And we knew what it took to, to promulgate that, you know, through uh, commercial things like Pan Am. And, and there are these tremendous lessons about how you secure advantage through an integrated campaign in the space domain, none of which, you know, this document 
uh, takes the time to instruct guardians in. And so, you know, while it doesn't say don't invest in your, you know, mutual fund or IRA, you know, it leaves open the possibility that some smart kid could do that on its own. It does not take aside with fatherly advice and say, here are the ways you start to think about and do that. Now, before I move on, Brent, you said that you had something to say about the intelligence doctrine. And before I move on, I wanted to give you a chance to um, say your piece. Oh, well, I wasn't sure if we were going to talk about the uh, intelligence doctrine specifically. But uh, when I read the intelligence doctrine, I read it right after the uh, the operations doctrine. And the first thing that struck me is that the intelligence doctrine itself was uh, perfectly serviceable from a joint Air Force-centric sort of space intelligence uh, perspective. and But it wasn't connected very well with the operations doctrine. Uh, it leads me to believe that they were written by separate people, maybe in the same office, but they didn't really talk amongst themselves a lot. And again, I'm going to go back to the line of communication, which I think the celestial line of communication, space line of communication, LOC, whatever you want to call it, is a critical idea in space control. It just is. But if you are going to accept that, like the operations doctrine now does, you have to focus on understanding what lines of communication you have to deal with and you have to contest and you have to uh, either disrupt, deny, take over, or build your own, increase, strength your, strengthen your own uh, in order to win space you know, superiority. And that is a huge order for intelligence, especially in integrating campaigning like, uh, like Pete is talking about. Intelligence almost rises to uh, an operation in and of itself in that it, intelligence no longer supports just the operations going on, but will actually drive a lot of strategies and uh, maybe even the uh, other parts of uh, operations and maybe operations even support intelligence you know, gathering and other things like that. And there was just no connection with any of that new and expanded understanding of what space intelligence needs to be in the doctrine, even though the operations doctrine would, if you read it deep enough, would suggest that intelligence has to change fairly dramatically. And the only reason I bring that up is because everyone touts the Space Force as a small service, and it is, relatively speaking. But if you're going to embrace the small service, you have to make sure that everyone is talking together and everyone is on the same page because the Space Force might be the only service, you know, small enough to be capable of doing that. So uh, I would highly suggest that in the next iteration of these, the operations folks and the intelligence folks have to get together to make sure they're all pointed in the same direction doctrinally, uh, as opposed to you know, the Space Force Operations Doctrine just looking like old Air Force Doctrine and uh, especially the Intelligence Doctrine looking like everyone else's Joint Intelligence Doctrine uh, rather than really digging deep and understanding from the new mission statement, from what Secretary Kendall is saying, and from what Space Force Operations Doctrine is saying, this is what we need Space Force Intelligence to be. And I think this initial document is just sort of a swing and a miss from what is really necessary. Uh, although the intelligence doctrine did uh, satisfy the first requirement, which is now at least the Space Force has an intel doctrine document that they can give to everyone else. You know, I, I'll, I'll start with what I like and and then talk about, you know, where I, where I think it could be better. So first of all, you know, 
it's almost like, you know, a regulation or instruction. You know, it's very, very, here's how we do things. And, and there's a lot, like you can learn a lot about what are the different ints, you know, what is the vocabulary, you know, what is the intelligence cycle, um, who's who in the zoo. And I think all that is is very helpful. You know, in comparison to 3.0, it is a very, you know, sober, straightforward document. And, you know, I, I would say the one thing that I, I think is uh, it, it just lacks ambition. Um, you know, it is, it is a very no-nonsense uh, term, but in terms of like what Space Force intelligence should aspire to be, what its best military advice to the nation and to its partners, I think it, it, it could have been more bold. Um, and I hope in subsequent iterations, you know, it, it might be more bold. Buried in that document, I thought was a very interesting thing. You know, it, it said that the CSO had mandated that, you know, Space Force doctrine uh, would comply with, you know, joint doctrine and joint, you know, doctrine outlay, uh, the way they lay it out and terminology. And I, you know, this has been controversial, but overall, I think that is a, a very smart decision because it means that your your ability to communicate with the other forces and to stand on what already exists will, will happen faster. Um, what I think you have to do to compensate for that is that the Space Force has to attempt to drive novel thinking about its domain into joint doctrine. And, you know, that that's where things like, you know, Brent and I are talking about, particularly in integrated strategic campaigning. It's such, you know, green fields that nobody has done anything there yet. And Brent. You know, Peter also revealed to me that you are the person who first applied the concept of brown water versus blue water to space operations. And in aggregate, where does this doctrine put the Space Force? In the brown water or in the blue? And maybe you want to also just give us a little idea of what you mean by brown water and blue water. Well, you know, as simple as I can make it, brown water really looks at the space force. We, you know, now brown water is a is a term that blue water folks use to sort of denigrate brown water folks. <laughs> so, you know, it is a little bit of cultural superiority attempts there. But uh, really, in in the blue water brown water, you know, dichotomy, it would be the brown waters looking, you know, at geo and below anything that we do in space is driven by what the ground needs. You know, uh, we're interested in supporting the joint warfighter, the terrestrial warfighter, first and foremost. And there's no real call to look anywhere but Earth and its immediate surroundings. The blue water, on the other hand, is uh, very much concerned with space as it, you know, as its own thing. There are other strategic ways to use space beyond what has historically been done you know it's it identifies that the moon has been a huge uh, geostrategic you know for lack of a better term campaign field in the past you know apollo and and the in the original space race it will be and, again and now the cislunar regions really coming to the fore uh, yeah, at least, you know, rhetorically and, you know, in, uh, you know, cool op-eds like in the hill and such, but, um, He's you know, digging at you, it's, theater. it's really, you know, the, <laughs> the analogy is, you know, with, with the, the, you know, sea power where the brown water is riverine forces, uh, close to shore, uh, navies, brown water navies really have no interest in going out in, into the deep sea. They don't really have power projection capabilities. 
in their domain. Uh, whereas the blue water are people that can, you know, can apply force across the seas away from their homelands, you know, uh, power projection. And so the blue water advocates like, like us would tend to think that sooner or later, and it might be sooner or it might be later, but eventually it will happen. Space forces have to focus more on the domain itself as an approach to influencing things on earth, as opposed to just supporting people on earth that are trying to influence other things on earth. But, you know, it's going to be a, uh, it's going to be a long haul to try to get the space force from going primarily brown water to primarily blue water. And it's going to be a combination of uh, being dragged there by circumstances. You know, if the, if starship works and they start sending a whole bunch of people to the moon or to Mars or other places, the space force will be forced to adapt. Um, If, you know, China and the United States and India and Russia start sending a whole bunch of probes to the moon and we start getting irritated with each other, the space force is going to have to deal with that. But it will also be internally driven. Like sooner or later, some of the youngsters that joined the space force because it sounded good, you know, early on might get frustrated with being the uh, the satellite drivers of the joint force and really assert themselves to try to be the primary strategic campaigners of the 21st and 22nd century and beyond. But that's, uh, you know, when that happens and, in, in, you know, is, is very much an open question. If it happens, I don't think it is a question at all. It will happen. But uh, as far as these doctrine documents go, I would say they're still firmly ensconced in the brown water thinking enough to get through uh, the reviews from all the people that can, that can knife it, that can say no. There's a lot of people that can say no to add stuff to doctrine. But there's enough of an opening in, you know, operations especially, and even a little bit in intelligence, that uh, blue water people can operate in that, you know, uh, in those documents. But it's going to be a very, you know, salami tactics kind of campaign in order to go from brown water to blue water. And as much as it pains me to say it, maybe that's the way it needs to be, because we should, we owe it to the American people to to play the game that we need to play, not the game that we would like to play. But that goes both ways. A lot of people that are brown water would like nothing better than to do what they've always done and not have to worry about the moon or solar. You know, the solar regime, what the heck is that? You know, um, they're comfortable there. And then there's other people that are blue water that's like, hey, I didn't want to be Air Force Space Command with a with a couple of pins on my Air Force uniform. I wanted to be an actual Space Force or an actual Space Guard or an actual Starfleet you know, maybe that's what they want rather than what the, uh, the people need, what America needs. And, you know, the struggle is how the space force is going to develop. And hopefully we develop the right way and in a successful way, in a victorious way. And, and Peter, you recently wrote what I consider to be a masterful thought piece titled Blue Water and Brown Water Space Strategies and Their Budgetary Profiles. And a link to this essay has already been available in the Downlink Podcast newsletter. In the essay, you examine the budget implications of ideology, specifically how ideology will compel Congress and any administration, really, to strategically invest in the development of the Space Force's capabilities. Why did you write this paper and what's really at stake here? 
Well, Laura, I wrote that paper because I was continually frustrated by uh, trying to make an argument that I, I found it difficult for people to to follow or, or 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 get. And so I wanted to try to put it in a more coherent manner. And I wanted to also just sort of lay it on the line in a, in a way that bureaucracies understand. So folks like Brent and I are principally involved in, you know, the, the ideological battle for, you know, what is going to create sustained long-term advantage. But, you know, a lot of people don't, don't necessarily care or, or think that that is uh, too nebulous to understand. But I wanted to make it clear why I thought this had major budget implications. And I'll tell you a story about, you know, one of the things that went through my mind when I wrote it. I had a mentor uh, at Air University from the medical community who had told me that, you know, the Air Force had known for some time about what was healthy for its members and, you know, what we needed to do in terms of aerobic health that would be good for people. And the Air Force wouldn't institute it because it had some particular cost to do it. And it wasn't until they had a study that showed that if you could delay the members getting these aerobic-related diseases until they were past retirement, you shifted the medical budget out of the active-duty military into the Veterans Administration. And as soon as they realized that, oh, you know, there's a net benefit, then the Air Force did the right thing, right? And so part of this uh, paper is really a cynical argument that, you know, while I believe that fundamentally the best thing for the nation is for the Space Force to start, you know, thinking proactively about blue water space power. They should realize that it's a huge budgetary uh, boon to them to do that. And so, you know, I I leverage one of your podcast guests, George Pullen, who sort of, you know, does pro bono work as sort of the chief economist for the for the Space Force. And I asked him to sort of project out a model of, you know, where the space economy was going how fast it was growing, how fast he, you know, his model would predict that sort of the blue water aspect beyond geo and the the in-space product um, would be. And then, you know, I made certain assumptions about, you know, what what is the contract with America for a brown water service, which is basically to support the joint force? And what is the contract, you know, with a blue water, you know, which is to defend and expand the lines of commerce and to protect America's broader interests? And the bottom line is that, you know, as you get several decades out, the Space Force budget is, you know, approaches like 10 times what it would be for the brown water. That, you know, this, the the amount that you could gain just by, you know, doing the protection of the expected economic return in space is just vastly bigger than going after a fixed pie internal to the Department of Defense. And it shows how ideas influence your rhetoric, your planning investment, and your actual systems investment, and then how that grows over time. And, you know, in the model that I present, right, you don't really become sort of a dominant blue water, you know, force until like sometime after 2050. But it's a slow and exponential curve. And you start now with, you know, maybe, you know, 2% of your actual you know, money going into blue water, you know, capability development, maybe 5%, you know, of your planning effort thinking about what will be required, uh, but a much larger percent, you know, of your of your uh, posture statement and cultural references, you know, going to that. And that, in the end, leads to a much, much more powerful, 
bureaucratic space force. And so that's something that I thought people should, you know, they should look at the numbers and get a little bit of sticker shock and go, man, maybe there's really something to this. So we all know that this is budget wrangling season. The Senate just reconvened and the House is set to return this week. What from the doctrine, email, or the Space Force's new mission statement do you think will have the most strategic impact on the Space Force and its budget going forward? You know, unfortunately, I, I, I don't actually think, I think all this is, is late to need in terms of, uh, of providing that. And I don't think that, you know, the, the Space Force has repostured its, you know, budget, you know, within the context of secure our interests to from space. I think it's easy enough for them to just shoehorn what they've already, you know, asked. You know, there's a strong push from the uh, you know, from the doctrine or for intelligence that is providing best military advice to Congress. And, and by the way, that's a shortfall that we haven't talked about is some of us believe that particularly now when the Space Force is young, that doctrine needs to also provide best military advice as to a political military doctrine as to how the Space Force should be employed for the net benefit of the nation. And these documents you know, speak primarily uh, down and out, right? So they explain to the Joint Force what the Space Force does, and it explains to Guardians, you know, how, how they should think about space. It It is not a very strong document in explaining up, which, by the way, is called for in the integrated strategic, one of the competencies of the integrated campaigning document of providing best military advice uh, to the national leadership on how to use space forces. So I actually don't think that any of these uh, innovations are going to have any impact on this year's budget. I would tend to agree with that. I think, you know, if you're going to really assess what these do for the space force, these are very important early victories that can be built on for, you know, major offensives later on that we're just not postured for yet. They're important. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it shows some progress. It might be, you know, akin to the, uh, the, some of the Navy victories in uh, early 1942 against, uh, the Japanese Navy around, uh, around New Guinea and those areas, uh, where it's like, Hey, you know, we shows we can stop them, but there's a long war ahead. And I tend to think that's what this is. It's going to be up to the Space Force, the individual guardians, to take what they like and run with it. But but for right now, uh, there's still a war even in doctrine about what the Space Force is supposed to do. If you are not unified internally, you are not going to be able to convince Congress to uh, to do much more than, you know, super fund what you've asked for for the better part of a decade and a half, <laughs> you know, uh, especially as Air Force Space Command. So, you know, uh, it's, it's good, but, but for right now, there's a long, uh, a long road to hope. Brent, Peter, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Laura. It was a great conversation. Yeah, it's always fun to be here. Thanks for having us again. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. 
I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.